The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 52, Archaeology and Faith. In episode 17 of The Christian Atheist, I locked horns with a critic who called himself Max Doubt. I would gently suggest, if you have not, that you listen to it, as it will provide context and illumination to our discussion today. And today's episode is, in many ways, an update to that discussion. Max was intelligent, but had a tendency to overstate his arguments to claim more than the evidence and careful reasoning allow. This is not only a problem for unbelievers and atheists, but a fault into which theists and Christians can easily, and all too often do, fall as well. Several weeks ago, I was excited to learn of a new archaeological find on Mount Ebal, the mountain of the curse, in Israel which had been excavated by Adam Zertal in the 1980s. Zertal made the controversial claim that he had discovered the altar from Joshua 8.30-31. Zertal died in 2015, but his legacy and the controversy live on. On March 24, 2022, the Associates for Biblical Research, ABR, announced the discovery in December 2019 of a small, two centimeters by two centimeters, folded lead sheet, a curse tablet, or defixio, discovered in the detritus of Zertal's excavations. Using a technique of dry sifting, followed by wet washing, the team found the curse tablet, assuming it to be, typical of other examples of the type, of much later date than the altar itself. This initial assumption, though, gave way to a much earlier date on the basis of several considerations, not the least of which was the age of the altar site itself. Metallurgical analysis traces to a lead mine in Greece that was active in providing lead to the Late Bronze and Early Iron Ages at the time of the altar itself, as determined by Zertal. Utilizing thousands of tomographic scans of the tablet, they claim to have been able to piece together the message inside the folded lead tablet, claiming that the script is Proto-Hebraic, and in which the name of God, Yahweh, appears twice. If they are correct, this is the oldest appearance of the sacred name of God discovered in Hebraic text in Israel. What do we make of this discovery? I must admit that it sends thrills up my spine to think of further archaeological evidence in support of the historical narrative of the Old Testament. That it may offer evidence that the higher critics have it wrong delights my pugilistic impulses, as I believe them wrong for a variety of methodological reasons, and not just as skeptics of the Bible's historicity. I would encourage you to listen on our Simple Gifts podcast to C.S. Lewis's essay, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, in three parts, beginning Tuesday, April 26th, in which he argues cogently against this interpretive method. My imagination, too, thrills, 
as I think of having extant artifacts from Joshua's lifetime. To feel again as I felt as a Bible college student, walking where Jesus walked, seeing what he saw. As it happens, I was in Israel during the time of Adam Zertal's excavations. It is amazing to me to find that events had been set in motion then that would lead us to this discovery today. I am not an archaeologist, nor a biblical scholar, so I am dependent upon the scholarship and honesty of others in trying to make sense of, to piece together, a comprehensive picture of what we know and don't know. Scott Stripling, the face of this discovery, has declared, quote, One can no longer argue with a straight face that the biblical text was not written until the Persian period or the Hellenistic period, as many higher critics have done. When here we do clearly have the ability to write the entire text at a much, much earlier date. End quote. My bet is that Stripling is wrong on this point, that the higher critics will indeed, and with a straight face, argue precisely what they have always argued, no matter how decisively this tablet proves to be what they claim it to be. This find, for me, is another piece in the puzzle that stands alongside my faith in God. I believe that all parts of the puzzle, truth with a lowercase t, create the broad mosaic of reality, truth with a capital T, which we seek. I believe that there is no truth that does not speak of God's reality and presence. As I told Max Doubt, sometimes we simply must wait until the evidence clarifies and settles, and, perhaps, the missing parts are found. He proudly proclaimed to me, quote, The sciences of Egyptology and Palestinian archaeology have reached a consensus. Ancient Israel was never in Egypt. So no ten plagues, no exodus, no wanderings, and no conquest of Canaan. The first Israelites were Canaanites. If Wise had studied the Bible, then he must know that most of the stories were written long after the supposed events, and those characters who are not completely fictional are mainly propaganda props. Is Wise familiar with the documentary hypothesis? or the synoptic problem? I doubt it, but these have been the main focus of real biblical scholarship for over a century. While this defixio seems to support the biblical history and undermine Max's case, the case of the higher critics, and I therefore greet it with great enthusiasm and joy, we must be careful to not overstate it. It is dangerous to assume, as Max does, that a lack of evidence for something definitively means that it is not the case. But we too must be careful not to overstate evidence that seems to contradict the critics. When we pursue truth, we pursue God. For God is truth. Christians need never fear the truth, whatever it is. What we must fear is standing as for truth on that which is yet doubtful, 
rather than reserving judgment. That which merely seems true may do greater damage than an obvious falsehood. The history of Christianity is full of such occurrences, such as William Miller's prediction of the day and hour of the Second Advent, making Christians appear ridiculous. We should be aware that even if everything that is claimed here is borne out and verified by other scholars, and even if scholarly consensus approaches nearly universal assent, per impossible, it does not spell the end of the higher critical approach. And it is not a death knell to doubts about Old Testament historicity. These approaches start with assumptions that almost no empirical data can dispel. Belief is not compelled by reason or evidence, and that is as true of theistic as it is of atheistic belief. The academic critics of this find, such as Professors Israel Finkelstein of the University of Haifa and Chris Rolston of George Washington University, should be heard as they are urging methodological caution and expressing healthy skepticism. It seems to me as though the ABR team is content to allow the evidence to speak for itself, though understandably they are being castigated for poisoning the well. Their peer-reviewed article is promised for this summer. Both Finkelstein and Rolston are critical that the scanned pictures of the text were not made available. Stripling indicated in an interview, however, that he had twice by email offered to Rolston the opportunity to be a part of the team investigating the tablet, without response. Rolston, to my knowledge, has not replied to this comment. I tend to believe that the ABR team has good reason to make the assertions they've made. But my faith in God does not depend upon this find's details being verified. My interest is twofold. 1. Finding higher criticism an arrogant and wrong-headed approach to literary study when indiscriminately applied, I rejoice at evidence displaying its faults in application to any literature. And 2. To learn the lessons that this controversy can teach us about faith, both that of theists and of atheists. The two interests are intertwined. First, then, the essence of the higher critical approach is skepticism, though I do not believe that skepticism itself is the root of its faulty methodology, but rather a decided lack of skepticism. I am a skeptic, and my rather broad-ranging skepticism is why I chose the moniker the Christian Atheist. I find skepticism not only compatible with Christian faith, but of its very essence. Faith originates in uncertainty, in doubt, and orients itself toward the knowable, the real, the true. We do not doubt that which we believe certain. It is this unskeptical certainty that offends me in higher criticism, as it is belief masquerading as knowledge. Like so much Hegelian thought, it stands before experience and claims to know better. 
applying its own prescriptive vision as sacrosanct, while denying that anything else can be so. They are skeptical of everything an author claims. They are skeptical that the purported author of a text is the author. They are skeptical of the motivations of the author. They are skeptical of the chronology. They are skeptical of nearly everything about a text except their ability to read between the lines and discern the truth behind it. Now, I have no quarrel with skepticism about any of the particular areas of interest within a text, biblical or otherwise. But if I am asked to read a text not as a thing in itself, which stands by itself or falls by itself in relation to itself and the rest of our knowledge structures, and to place my faith instead in a team of experts who claim to know better than the text, everything about it, I see an unjustifiable and arrogant certainty underlying the whole skeptical procedure. They claim to be able, by reading what the text doesn't say, while manifesting an extreme skepticism toward what it does say, to know a great deal more than anyone else about the text. It is these experts and their method that arouse in me a much greater skepticism than the text itself, as that about which they are never skeptical is themselves and their methodology. As is too often the case, the self-deceptive structures of Hegelian ideology engage in the double-think procedure of believing something certain while denying their belief. Atheism and theism are both belief structures, but the underlying structure for both is the fact that we don't know, that is, agnosticism. As C.S. Lewis says in his essay, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, quote, For agnosticism is, in a sense, what I am preaching. I do not wish to reduce the skeptical element in your minds. I am only suggesting that it need not be reserved exclusively for the New Testament and the creeds. Try doubting something else. End quote. The problem with our age of extreme skepticism, then, is not skepticism itself, but rather the certainty, the dialectical opposite of skepticism, that underlies the skeptic's approach to everything. They believe what they want to believe, doubt what they want to doubt, and then claim that they are objectively following the evidence, that they are not believing at all. This first issue, the weakness of the higher critical approach, will, I hope, take care of itself in the unfolding of this drama. I will be watching with eager interest, and we will update our listeners as new information becomes available. To address the second issue, I would like to again quote C.S. Lewis, this time from his essay, Religion and Rocketry. Quote, Christians and their opponents again and again expect that some new discovery will either turn matters of faith into matters of knowledge or else reduce them to patent absurdities. But it has never happened. 
What we believe always remains intellectually possible. It never becomes intellectually compulsive. I have an idea that when this ceases to be so, the world will be ending. We have been warned that all but conclusive evidence against Christianity, evidence that would deceive, if it were possible, the very elect, will appear with Antichrist. And after that, there will be wholly conclusive evidence on the other side. But not, I fancy, till then on either side. End quote. For those of you who have listened to our series, A Matter of Faith, you will hear echoes here of our conclusion that faith underlies all of human rational life and action. We as believers must understand that no matter how strong our case may be in terms of reason and evidence, it will not compel the unbeliever to believe. Belief is, at least partly, choice. We are free beings. God doesn't want slaves or automatons. Both sides, as Lewis says, want to think of their own position in terms of certainties, rather than in terms of faith. Faith, however, is the explicit stance of the church. Faith in God, faith in Christ, evidence and reason will never be more than paracletes, support to faith, even though faith itself is a rational embrace of reason and evidence as pointing to truth. This is true for both sides. We Christians are supposed to be conscious of our faith, whereas today's Hegelians and believers in scientism, modern atheists, refuse to see their own belief status, hide it from themselves. They alone are rational. They alone possess the truth. Woe to us when we arrogate to ourselves such certainty as believers. We should also recognize that we cannot bring others to faith. It is, and always has been, a matter between God and the individual. And it involves man's will, which is affected by reason and evidence, but not compelled by it. While my faith rejoices in discoveries like this defixio, I have no illusions that it will turn the intellectual tide back towards theism. Even definitive evidence, such as we are capable of grasping, of God would not be sufficient to overcome atheistic faith. As Jesus said, quote, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Luke 16.31 Belief is a powerful force. And Jesus tells us here that even a direct and personal miracle would be insufficient to overcome a faith in opposition to faith in God. One final quote from C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy 
will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.